welcome to Nonprofit Tangent, sharing nonprofit stories from New York City and beyond. Today, we take a trip to Bulgaria to hear Ivan Dimov's story about founding a new advocacy group for the LGBT community with connections to Brooklyn CrossFit, Manhattan Finance, and more. Then, we'll catch up with an old friend, founder of the Keo Project, which teaches students all over the world self-expression with digital photography, with just a twist of gender equality. But right now, let's catch up with Ivan and hear about the inspiration behind his brand new organization hoping to help the lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender community in his home country. First off, thank you again for, for uh, spending some time uh, to talk to me and tell me a little bit about Single Step. Can you summarize what uh, what your organization does and, and where you're based and, and give us some of the nuts and bolts of what yeah. you do? Well, thank you for the opportunity. Delighted to be here. So Single Step, I, um, I was born in Bulgaria, but I left many years ago. I started in the States and then uh, spent my professional life up to this point uh, in the States, in Australia in um, other places around the world, but primarily New York. So I was in banking and finance. But for many reasons, I decided to come back to Bulgaria and establish an organization to help LGBTI youth and their parents, friends and allies, because there's absolutely no resources here in the country. And the specific things that we're going to to provide the specific resources are a um, hotline, very similar to the Trevor Project in the U.S., a uh, community center where members of the community and their friends and allies can come, get access to professional help, uh, medical, legal, psychological, and also just come to the, the center to hang out, read a book, talk to, to other people. The ultimate goal is to help create a more viable LGBTI community here in, in Bulgaria and to work on some uh, legal initiatives to um, to change the, you know, some laws that are still very prohibitive towards the community. Generally speaking, what's sort of the atmosphere for someone who would identify with LGBT in Bulgaria? What's, what's, what's that like? I mean, it's certainly, uh, you know, I can imagine it's not great in the United States, what would it, what is it like in Bulgaria? Well, there are certain things that are, I think, universal in terms of coming to terms with your, with your own identity when you're young. So once you realize that you're different, you, you know, you start wondering, am I sick? What's wrong with me? How can I change? On a personal level, when you're, let's say you're not in the capital city of Sofia, where it's a little bit better. But if you're, if you're from a small town or village, your, your first thought is something is wrong with me. And the problem is that there's nobody uh, that these kids can turn, you, turn to to tell them there's nothing wrong with you. The occasion that made me think about coming back to Bulgaria and doing this was a very, very emotional and very, very touching moment a couple of years ago. I was at a party and there were a lot of people and very open about my sexuality. And there was this young kid who had just graduated from high school who came to me, obviously very, very disturbed. And he said, can we talk? Because I don't have anyone to talk to. And he shared his personal story that really shook me. 
he said that he had told his mother that he was gay. She had taken him to a psychiatrist who told him, don't worry, we can fix you. Okay. And he freaked out. Uh, he ran away from home. He tried to hurt himself. And um, for the very first time, I, was, I faced such a personal story, which really affected me. And I went back to New York, and I was talking to some close friends of mine, and we decided to do something about it, because after our research, it turned out that there's no resources in the country to give a hand to this kid. And also not just the kid, but the parents, because they're also going through a process. And this process is also, most of it is kind of universal. You know, parents blame themselves for, for what's happening. Then they try to ignore it. They try to forget it. They park it somewhere in their mind. Then once they come to terms with it, they ask their child to keep it a secret. It's something that we, we can help with. And that's the goal. Have you been able to stay in touch with that, that boy you spoke with? Yes, yes, he is fine. I mean, obviously, you know, he didn't do things to himself. And um, he, he is, uh, he's doing okay. He's in university now um, in a bigger city, so he's fine. Is he realized, does, have you spoken to him, that he's the, he's the spark behind this whole movement, this whole organization uh, you started? I haven't talked to him in a bit. I'm sure that he will find out and we'll have a chat then. Nice. Um, yeah. So uh, one of the things that really kind of pulled me in when I was reading about your your group is your organization is I love how you got things started and, and started to spread the word. Uh, can you tell us kind of uh, where you came up with the idea and, and what you did to kind of get the word out a little bit and, and uh, get some interest and some momentum behind uh, your idea? One of my two hobbies are running and CrossFit. And I'm uh, actually quite fanatical about both. I run marathons and I've been doing CrossFit for, for eight years. The idea behind the organization was there. Then once I was, one time I was running and um, I thought of the name because single step is from the, an old Chinese um, saying, uh, a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. And then... I decided to do something a little bit extreme and drastic to show that I really care because a lot of people start things for various reasons, but I just wanted to make a statement that I am 100%, you know, I'm putting my whole heart into this, not just my heart, but my physical well-being because I decided to, in order to raise awareness and raise funds, um, I decided to run 12 marathons in 12 weeks in cities around Europe, so one every week. And uh, that's done, I finished it, which was great because that's probably the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. <laughs> the biggest TV station here in Bulgaria is uh, producing a documentary on my efforts, but more importantly, on why I did this. And this will be the very first sort of open discussion on these issues in the country. And I, I hope that it will start a dialogue, uh, a more pragmatic dialogue on why I subjected myself to this. <laughs> and, you know, how were you, I guess, after the 12th marathon? I mean, how was, uh, did you have a long recovery? I mean, what was... 
No, it was fine. I mean, my body got used to it. Our bodies are amazing. I mean, you put them into, you know, through whatever, and they, they deal with it. Uh, if your mind is, is 100% sure, you know, it wants to do it, then the body will follow. All right. But the last marathon was in Athens, which is actually the original uh, marathon. Sure. as they, And it was very tough. Even though it was in November of last year, it was hot. There were very long hills. There, was, uh, there were headwinds. And I was just like, what else can you give me? I mean, <laughs> but anyway, I, um, I finished. It felt great. And um, it, it's a great feeling when you accomplish something that you worked so hard for. Yeah. Um, so marathons. Uh, on the other hand, CrossFit, what I love about it, well, one of the things I love about it is that it's very community-oriented, sort of extended family. And I made a lot of friends, very good friends in, um, in my box, uh, in Williamsburg in, um, in Brooklyn. And I decided to do a fundraiser there, a competition. And I, I knew that the community will come, will gather behind me, but because again, there's no reason for these people to care about a small country like Bulgaria on the other side of the, of the world. But I do care about it. I'm part of that community. And they took it uh, as their own cause. And we had a very successful event at CrossFit Virtuosity in Brooklyn. And then we replicated that. I, I just, in um, cooperation with an organization called um, Outwad, we organized a couple of fundraisers in um, LA, in Miami. And then I got in touch with someone at a gym, a CrossFit gym in Mexico City. They did one for me. And then in Reykjavik, in Dublin. So it was... I mean, I, I expected it in a way, but I was really very, very pleasantly surprised and touched by the response of uh, the community because they, some people, some of the owners of the gyms, I didn't even know before that. I got in touch with them and I told them, this is what I'm doing for my community. And you're also part of my other community. And that's the way things happen. You, I... I mean, I'm new to this. I'm new to, to this new activist role. But what I discovered and what, what was my hope is that once you make it personal, once it's, it's your story and it matters to you, your community, whatever it is, will, will follow. Just have to be very honest and sincere in, and, and explain why it matters to you. Very nice. So, uh, so if your marathons which are promoting your organization, finished up uh, just this past fall, so in, the, I guess, the yeah. fall of 2016. What have you been able to do in the, I guess it's only been a few months, really, but uh, how, how are things going? How is, uh, how is everything um, coming together? Um, we registered the organization in December uh, 2016. I um, started reaching out to various partners, corporate uh, non-profit embassies, uh, a foundation, and so forth. But uh, I was very lucky that I met a, um, a girl who, whose professional life has been in the um, NGO space. And I did not know her before that. We met once, uh, had a very long chat. Then she called me the next day. She said, can we talk again? And we met. And by the end of the week, she quit her job and she became the executive director of the organization. Whoa. Uh, which was unexpected and very welcoming uh, <laughs> because uh, obviously, you know, I'm the founder, but I want to create, help create an institution that will take off its, you know, its own, its own life and 
grow and develop in the future with less help uh, on my side. So we established the organizations. We have quite a few partnerships that we were able to form with the corporate world, as I mentioned, with foundations, with the you know embassies, including the U.S. embassy. And they're, they're very sympathetic and helpful to the cause. We're working on the on our priorities, which are the the hotline, online chat, and the um, community center. So that's in the works. A dear friend of mine, when I told him what I was doing, he said, this is amazing. He inherited a house here in the center of, of Sofia, the capital, and he said that he'll donate it for the, for the center. Oh, wow. Which is great. Unfortunately, the house is not in a great condition, so we need to fix it. But anyway... Uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just giving it as an example of how if you don't share your efforts that you're putting your you know, whole heart into with your community, with your personal friends, if you don't show them that this is so important to you, you'll never get something like this. So my, what I learned was um, don't be afraid to ask. Right. You know, the kindness of strangers is absolutely amazing. And you found me online. <laughs> I did. I'm obviously delighted to, to share my story with you. I mean, a lot of people, <laughs> it was a bit of a, an interesting situation. A lot of, when I told my friends, you know, uh, what I was planning to do and move from New York back to Bulgaria, everybody who lives, you know, outside of Bulgaria, being Bulgarian or not, told me, oh, wow, this is amazing. How can I help you? Everybody who lives here, their initial reaction was, why, why are you even trying? I mean, here are the hundred problems that will occur when you're trying to do this. I think this is more of a cultural difference between, you know, the States and, and here where, I guess here we're a little bit more pessimistic. And um, people always try to find an ulterior motive of doing something, while what I call the, very fondly, I call it the naive optimism in the U.S., where you know that you can get stuff done and you just do it. I'm trying to contaminate people here with my naive optimism. <laughs> and you had mentioned something earlier to me, and I, I think it's interesting. Or I guess let me put it a different way. Have you gotten any pushback? And it's sometimes... Um, you know, uh, certainly in the States here, organizations like yours might get pushback from different communities and different people. Have you experienced any pushback? Uh, not yet. I expect it. Just because so far, uh, the last several months that we've been very, very active, all the contacts have been with either, pers either personal contacts, friends, acquaintances, or with organizations that I know would be very receptive to the idea. So we are not in operation, you know, the center is not in operation yet, the hotline is not in operation yet. We're planning major efforts to promote and raise awareness through partnerships that we established with Fulbright. You know, they have 35 American um, teachers, young, young guys and girls in their 20s boring high schools around the country. And an interesting story they mentioned, a lot of actually, a lot of stories how as outsiders, kids feel much more comfortable 
talking to them because they don't feel comfortable talking to their friends in school, classmates, God forbid, their parents or teachers. So they, they approach these um, American teachers kind of feeling as the outsider they would understand better. And, um, and the teachers, a lot of them shared that such a resource, uh, the resource we're planning to provide, will be so essential because they're not equipped to answer these questions. I mean, they can provide a, uh, a sympathetic ear and hand, but they just, in more serious situations, they just don't know what to do. So back to your question, pushback, not yet, just because we're not out there yet, full, full speed. But I'm sure there will be, and I'm willing to talk to anyone who, who wants to talk, I refuse to talk to right-wing groups who are so blinded by by some sort of indoctrination or hate that they don't see how this the way they treat their kids or their friends hurts them. And and um, uh, anyone who wants to talk to me, I will talk to them and try to have a a pragmatic dialogue and a constructive dialogue. Right. Now, I'm sorry, I keep, asking, keep saying I'm going to wind this up, and then all of a sudden you say yeah. something that triggers another question. Go ahead. So, uh, will you have any advocacy? I know you've kind of run through some of your, your, your organization is going to do a lot of different things. Will you have any advocacy, uh, meaning like public policy advocacy uh, elements of this? Absolutely, but um, it's our belief that this, these things are not done um, waving flags on the street. Uh, this is done with a very pragmatic plan and lobbying effort. So another, actually the only openly gay politician in Bulgaria is on our board. We have a lot of allies in, um, in the various parts of the political life here. We will do that. We will have advocacy work. It will come as a natural next step because there you really need some heavy hitters. You need a law firm that we have, actually, they're doing pro bono work for us. You need a case. You know, we need to figure out the steps, the plan, what needs to happen in what sequence. Because if you go out and you say, um, we want marriage equality now, with, I don't know, 20% of the population supporting it, right. it is doomed to fail. But if you create a more, you know, if you create an effort and a lobbying effort, and a community uh, and allies to stand behind it, then it's much easier to execute the plan. We're in touch with various foundations who provide support, uh, specifically for um, advocacy support, but we're not there yet. We need to do a lot of work before that. Excellent. This is great. Uh, and I think we're, we're starting to wind up the interview just as the construction workers have come back, started to pound on the building here. Uh, is there anything else that, that you'd like to bring up or talk about that we haven't been able to mention? Yeah, I mean, I mentioned something during this. Um, I have relied throughout this process on the kindness of strangers. I mean, people who didn't know me helped me in various ways. So um, we're planning a, um, a promotional campaign for various channels. There'll be a little video that we're putting together with some of our partners here, uh, an advertising company and a pro uh, production house that are helping us pro bono because they do believe in what we're trying to achieve. But um, in conclusion, I just want to ask your listeners, if you 
care about some of this, even if you don't care about any of this, but you feel like you can you can actually contribute something to that that can have a very big return on your social investment. Let's put it this way, because I do believe that what we're doing here is absolutely essential and needed. So um, if you'd like to help me and donate, you know that'll be amazing. Once again, the power of strangers. <laughs> Every once in a while, I go on a tear emailing a bunch of people and organizations that I think will have a nice story to tell. I'm so happy that Ivan and Single Step was one of the few who got back to me. He was also my first interview after getting back into the nonprofit story business and spent a lot of time tolerating my attempts uh, at shaking off technical rust. I'm looking forward to following Single Step as they grow and develop. So we will finish up with some stories from Bibita Patel. Now, a few years ago, she told me about starting the Keo Project, giving students in the developing world a unique opportunity of self-expression. It was one of the most engaging interviews from the old BQ podcast and linked on this page uh, for this episode. In this catch-up, she tells me uh, how they've introduced a gender equality dimension to their programs and how it's working. Yeah, what what has the what has the Keo project been up to over the last couple of years since we last uh, spoke? The last time we spoke was right before we went to India, which was our new gender based curriculum that we were going to test out there, and it went amazing. It was um, kind of went in there into India with three thoughts that I wanted to really work out. One of them was this gender program, which is where we teach photography to girls first um, in the first week. And then the second week, uh, the girls teach the boys. We're still there as the Keo team to help uh, oversee the whole project still and um, give support to the girls, but we are not the teachers. The boys, if they have any questions, they refer to the girls, um, not to the Keo team. So um, India was the first time we tested out these kind of new things after kind of getting our feet wet uh, with our first two programs of Haiti and Kenya. So India um, was our testing ground, and we've so far from that expanded the program to other locations like here in Brooklyn in New York and also one in Ethiopia earlier this year. So um, India was the first time we tested out these kind of new things after kind of getting our feet wet uh, with our first two programs of Haiti and Kenya. So India was our testing ground and we've so far from that expanded the program to other locations like here in Brooklyn in New York and also one in Ethiopia earlier this year. And I remember because I went to the the show that you had when you came back from India, there was really some amazing things that some of the students said about, you know, not just photography and not just self-expression, but also the gender relationship. Maybe could you share a couple of things that some of the kids said? Uh, yeah, so we had some really amazing success stories. Uh, one of my favorite stories because it's kind of 
um, one of our goals, but it's hard to predict whether or not that goal will actually be achieved because it depends on the students, obviously. Um, and it wasn't just from the girl side of the story. It was this um, was there was actually a boy in the program called Rajas, and um, he, 14 years old. The girls all talked about how he is known for being the bully in school. You know, he talks over the girls. He doesn't listen to them. Uh, a bunch of the boys didn't want to teach the girls how to fix the bicycles that the school had because they just assumed that girls would break them again. So what's the point of teaching them something? So we were kind of walking into a situation like that, which is almost something that you can expect, you know, um, around the world, given the situation of where how boys and girls relate to each other in school. And um, when it came time for the second week when the girls are owning that part of the week, part of um, their leadership development and uh, skills building is that they get to pick what part they want of the lesson plan they want to teach and including which boy they want to be their student. And um, it was funny because, you know, we laid out the 10 names of the 10 boys on the table and one of the girls, the first girls, immediately picked up Rajas's name. She's like, I want to teach him. And, um, you know, part of me was like, why, why is she picking him? I'm like, does she think he's cute or whatever? Um, but no, it came out because he's a bully and she wanted to boss him around for a week. <laughs> and so... I was, we didn't find this out until like midweek of like why she picked him and the reason um, why it was perfect because he actually listened to his teacher. He listened when she gave the assignments, when she critiqued his work, um, when she was explaining the techniques. And it was just amazing to see the two of them together. There were probably moments where he was pushing back, obviously, but to see the change throughout the week of how he was listening to this girl that he just did not listen to before, and she just blossomed under um, this opportunity of you know being a leader and shining and showing who what she's capable of. So at the end of the week, um, uh, Rajas told us that you know he realized that girls aren't so terrible that um, that they do know things and there is an opportunity to learn from them. So that was a giant success story that we saw the change happening through throughout the week and um, later on after the workshop was over one of the other students not his teacher um, one of the other girls students mentioned that he listened when she explained a math problem in class so you know that's not something he was doing before the workshop so that's kind of amazing that's really cool so then after India you met, went on to Kenya no, um, Kenya was before India, actually. Uh, oh. We, oh, yeah, I think I knew that. Yeah, you were. <laughs> totally you fine. Um, we, we started our Brooklyn program here in New York um, uh, because we were kind of going through some growing pains as an organization in our board development. We thought that having a local program would be a little bit easier for us to continue our work while we still did a lot of behind-the-scenes work. And... You know, that was like the behind the scenes reason, but also the other reason is that, you know, there's a huge gender equality issue in this country, obviously. And so this was a really awesome way of us uh, seeing how we can tailor our program to an American audience because American teenagers are vastly different than international kids. Um, for a lot of different reasons, one of the more obvious ones for our program is that our kids in America are more exposed to technology. So they already are used to taking pictures, you know, camera, um, used to taking pictures, usually with their phones. Very few of them actually hold a regular digital camera. 
Um, so this was for some of the kids, it was their first time holding an actual camera. So they were learning different techniques than just using their camera phones for taking selfies or, or as an example. I, was, I would joke around beforehand that American teenagers scare me. Uh, but it's, it was, I was using that as a way to mask the, the, the barrier that American students kind of create where um, international kids are just so excited that you're there. As a, they think that someone coming in and helping their country or their, their, their community is a good thing, and, and they're just excited for you to be there. So it's almost, um, it's almost like we're going in there as rock stars, you know, and it's very easy for us to be there and, and um, be a voice of, of knowledge for them. Um, but with American students, you know, we're also other, you know, New Yorkers just like them, and, and they put up a little bit of a barrier where it was, um, they wanted us to prove almost why we were there, you know. Um, it wasn't like they were just immediately accepting of the program and, and why we were doing it and the benefits that this program would have for them as a school community. So we had to continuously push that. And then there was a little bit more resistance from the boys in Brooklyn than we had in, in India and even Ethiopia where um, they weren't so willing to accept the girls being their teachers. They, really? they pushed back immediately saying that, you know, well, the girls are just learning themselves. Like, how are they the voice of authority? And so if they had any questions, they would turn to the Keo team as the adults in the room asking questions about photography or this or that. Um, and, you know, we kept pushing back going, no, we're not, the we're not the teachers. Your teachers are right there. You have to ask them the questions. And sometimes the, the girls didn't know the answer, so then they would turn around and ask us, which is totally fair and fine, and we encouraged that. But then sometimes the boys would see that, and so then they, in their mind they just want to cut out the middleman and come directly to us. So we had to keep pushing back on, on how that relationship developed. We kind of got there a little bit, but not as much as we'd like to, and so I think part of that would come about if we continuously work with the boys and girls there and continuously reinforce this idea of of learning from a peer who happens to be a girl. Right. Okay. So, uh, so same, same kind of question, I guess. Did the, when that program ended, what were some of the things that students said um, about their experience? Yeah, it was, it was actually really sweet. There was one girl, um, Woodley. She is very soft spoken and, 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 I don't know if I want to say shy, but she just kind of is not the most vocal person in, in the room. Um, and for various scheduling reasons, she was always in the room. She was the most present girl during the teaching part of the program. And she really shined throughout that process. She took a, such a leadership role in um, setting up what the, the lesson plan would look like with the boys and going through that and being account, you know, holding the other girl teachers accountable to that lesson plan and uh, really sharing her knowledge. She was really, really fantastic during that um, teaching portion, which was awesome to see for her because she went from someone who barely talked and when she did talk, you always had to like lean in to hear her voice because she was so soft-spoken, to being able to command a room and, you know, teach a bunch of other teenagers who are, you know, frankly, rowdy um, and not always willing to give her the space and the respect that that position needed to have. 
so she was really fantastic in that way. And, um, and, I, and this was a side note that just kind of happened given what's going on politically in our country. Uh, when we first started the program back in, in November, it was just after Trump got elected. Uh, and he obviously got elected with um, some of his platforms that were a little contentious to immigrant families. And uh, there were two sisters in our program who uh, come from a Muslim family. And so there was a lot of talk within the sessions in the fall with the girls of what it means to have Trump as a president and what it meant for some of the people in the room, given some of his platforms. And one of the girls, um, when it came time to photograph patterns and shadows, she was photographing the American flag in her in the school playground. And she's talking about the patterns and, you know, we asked her what that meant for her. And she said something really lovely about how that flag stands for uh, a country that's free, that lets you be the religion that you can, that anyone wants to be. Um, and she was the youngest girl in her class. She was the younger Muslim sister. And for her to say something like that during that political moment in our country uh, was really sweet to see and, and, and hear. Wow, that's really nice. this is where we end but we'll be back with some new interviews in what i want to say will be two weeks my thanks to ivan and single step as well as the beta and the keo project for their time and stories be sure to delve deeper into each organization with the links and pictures on nonprofittangent.com. and while you're there check out episode one for more nonprofit stories